This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, we're talking about Ethereum's London Fork and its proposals. Hi, this is Tim Bako. I work with the Ethereum Foundation and I run the core developer meetings, which is where decisions about what changes to make to Ethereum get made. That's coming up on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Wednesday, June 14th, 2021. We have a long show today, so I'm going to get straight into those crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. And I'm recording this at 12.07 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $32,838, up 0.4% in 24. Ethereum's in the number two spot at $2,000, even up 0.4%. Tether's in the number three spot. Binance Coin is at 309, down 0.3%. Cardano's at 128, down 1% in 24. 128 meaning $1.28. Just want to clarify that. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, USDC, Dogecoin, Polkadot, and BUSD. Total market cap, we're at $1.34 trillion, and a BTC dominance of 45.7%. Moving into our main conversation today, our only conversation today, and a half hour conversation, I'm talking to Tim Bako. He's going to tell us all about Ethereum's upcoming London Fork. Tim, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm good. How are you? I, I'm excellent, and I, I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for coming on and, and telling us about this. And because I have lots of questions, and I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about what Ethereum is and what a fork is, what's a London fork, what is an EIP. Dude, there's so much to talk about, but I yes. want to start at the very beginning. What is Ethereum, and what's the difference between Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0? Sure. So Ethereum is a blockchain network. Um, if, you're, if your listeners are familiar with Bitcoin, um, so it uses the same technology as Bitcoin. The biggest difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that um, it, Bitcoin lets you send Bitcoins, the units, uh, from one person to another. And that's basically most of its functionality. Ethereum lets you do arbitrary computation on the network. So not only can you send tokens from one person to another, you can create tokens on the network. Uh, you can create contracts. So say, you know, send these tokens if this thing happens and whatnot. Uh, so we've seen like a massive kind of financial economy get built on Ethereum. People call that the decentralized finance or DeFi. Um, so yeah, it's really this, this blockchain network that enables you to not only just transfer value, but also uh, build arbitrary applications. Ethereum 2.0 is a set of upgrades to Ethereum. So the most uh, meaningful one is going from proof of work to proof of stake. Proof of work is uh, the way that blocks get added to the network. Uh, so we have miners, which are people just running computers uh, that try to, to, they basically run random computations. And if they get kind of the right their computation within the right range to get to add a block to the blockchain. Um, that gets harder and harder the more people want to mine. And, and that's how kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum keep a stable block time, even though more and more miners come on the network. 
Um, one challenge with mining is that it's obviously very environmentally unfriendly because it requires all these computers. So what you can do instead is um, instead of using computers to like, you know, generate computation and figure out who gets into the next block, you can have people put up money and, you know, have them propose the next block. If they propose a block that's valid, that meets all of the rules of the protocol, you give them a bit of interest on their stake. And if they propose a bad block, you can just take their money away. Um, so one challenge with that is it's very easy to do that with just a small number of block proposers. So a lot of the current proof of stake systems will use like a handful to like maybe a hundred validators. Uh, that's obviously leads to centralization risks. So Ethereum has been working for years on this proof of stake algorithm um, that's much more decentralized and, and can just allow more people to participate. So, th so that's kind of the gist of Ethereum 2.0. It's just changing this uh, algorithm from proof of work to proof of stake on the network. Oh, perfect. So then I'm, that comes leads perfectly into my next question. Um, what is a fork? Now, I'm assuming that these forks are happening uh, because you're trying to slowly move Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0 with this, this proof of stake. And you just you can't just go on off. You just have to kind of like start curving it like this, like kind of like bending wood. If that's if that's correct. Um, what is a fork? And yeah. how, how does that work into this whole, I guess, ambition of F2.0? Sure. So basically, a, a, a fork on a blockchain is a point in time where all of the nodes or the participants in the network agree to change the rules of the network uh, in the same way, obviously. Um, and, and this is important because, because blockchains need to kind of agree on the data on every block. You can't like introduce a new feature and then some people adopt it and some people don't adopt it because that, that means they won't be able to agree on, you know, the we call that the state of the blockchain, basically the like all the transactions that are happening. So when we want to introduce new features to the blockchain, we need to have what's called a fork, which is just saying everybody at this block number kind of change the rules you're operating with. Um, and one of the nice things about blockchains is, you know, nobody forces you to update, right? Like, so this is kind of why we call them forks um, because historically they've happened mostly when there were controversial decisions. Um, and in Ethereum's case, the DAO is, is, is the biggest example there. So if some people agree to follow the new rules and some people disagree, then the network will fork, right? Like there'll be some people following the new rules, some people continuing on the old rules and you know that'll play out and there'll be just two different versions of the networks. And we've seen this with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. You see this with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV and, and, and so on. Um, on Ethereum, we've started calling them network upgrades because we also have a lot of changes we want to make that are pretty uncontroversial, but we just need everybody to adopt them at the same time, right? So it's not like when you hear a fork on Ethereum, uh, you know, ever since the DAO hack, there hasn't been a case where like there's actually some some contentiousness around the fork. It's just we need to introduce this new feature, and so we need everyone to upgrade at the same time. If people don't upgrade, then they just kind of get left behind. Uh, but in practice, there's not really like miners or like people that stay on the old chain. And so yes, for for we need to have forks every time we want a new feature, um, whether or not this is like a stepping stone to eat two dollars. So when we do decide to add the proof of stake engine, we're going to need a fork that says, you know, at this time, stop following proof of work, follow proof of stake. Uh, this is what we call kind of the merge, um, where we basically merge uh, the proof of stake system, which is is actually live on Ethereum today. So it's 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 up and running. There's about 10 billion, 12 billion dollars in it, um, but it's just separate from the current system because we wanted to make sure it was battle tested uh, before we we kind of brought it together. Um, so yeah, forks are when we change the rules 
we need them to go from proof of work to proof of stake, but we also need them whenever there's a new feature we want to add. Excellent, excellent. And, and what you're describing right now is a hard fork, correct? Or is that a soft fork? Okay, yeah. So now we're getting the weed. So the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork is a hard fork adds new rules or is like basically a breaking change with the protocol, whereas a soft fork is a restriction of current rules. So when you have a soft fork, um, you can have nodes that stay on the network, um, but, you know, that accept stuff uh, that's kind of no longer accepted by the nodes who've run a soft fork and decided to now just accept a subset of the rules. Um, but you can't add like a brand new feature with a soft fork. Um, so that's kind of the difference there. Ethereum has tends to prefer hard forks for a bunch of reasons, but they tend to just be like more explicit. Um, you know, we say at this point, there's a new feature, you can either opt in or out. Um, but you know, the Bitcoin community has has favored soft fork historically and, and you know, there's pros and cons to, to both. I understood, understood, cool. So we understand exactly what a hard fork is. And a lot of people who are listening are probably like, I know this already, let's get to the meat of this. Let's talk, start talking about London. We're getting there, everyone, please just give us one second. But what are some previous forks? Uh, and it was talk about more recent forks. Like what are some recent sure. forks and what, what did they do for Ethereum? Sure, so the, the last one we just had was in April, it was called Berlin. Um, so it added, I think five changes to the protocol, but the two biggest ones were um, fixing a potential denial of service issue uh, by raising some gas prices. So there were some operations on Ethereum that cost too little relative to the time a computer takes to execute them. And so that means somebody could have just uh, built blocks that you know abused that and, and those blocks would have been much longer to execute than the average blocks. Um, which could have kind of slowed down the network. So we we did some kind of a security fix to, to avoid that. And the other big change we, we added in, in Berlin was introducing the concept of multiple transaction types. And this will be relevant for, for London. Um, but currently on, on Ethereum, there was only like one or two transaction types. Um, and over time, as we get new feature and new stuff that people want to add to the protocol, we just want to have different formats of transactions we can use. So we, we kind of laid the groundwork and introduced one new transaction type in Berlin so that we, we can start experimenting with more of those going forward. Awesome. So the last couple of forks have been like city names, St. Petersburg's, uh, Istanbul, Berlin, and now London. W why city names? So historically, um, there was a bunch of, uh, of plays on, on, on the Istanbul city. So you had Byzantium, Constantinople, and uh, Istanbul, which are all the same name of the city across uh, you know, multiple ages. So it kind of reflected like the evolution of the protocol. Um, St. Petersburg was a fork that actually fixed the bug. And the person who found it was Peter. Uh, so it was just a funny play on words uh, to use his name uh, as part of that. But yeah, so now, you know, we, we reached Istanbul, I think it was 2019. Um, city still called Istanbul, so we needed new names. Uh, so we started using DEFCON cities. Um, so the first DEFCON happened in Berlin. The second one was in London. And so the one after that uh, will be Shanghai and then Cancun and, and so on. It's, I don't know why. I didn't, that, that, that seems kind of obvious. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So what is coming up in the London Fork? Sure. So the, the biggest change with most people I've been talking about is EIP-1559. Um, this could be a whole podcast interview in and of itself. Uh, but at a high level, it changes the way transaction fees work on Ethereum. Um, right now, there's no explicit notion in the protocol of how much you should pay for a transaction. So it's very hard to estimate what's the right amount you should put uh, in terms of gas price. So 1559 adds 
adds basically, we call that the base fee, but it adds the minimum you need to pay for a transaction in every block uh, as part of the, the block header. So it, it's much easier to, to estimate how much how much gas to pay for your transaction, basically. Um, and it also has the nice property of uh, burning a little bit of the transaction fees with each transaction, um, which helps kind of reduce the supply of Ether. The more people will use Ethereum, the more Ether will get burned, basically. Okay, so when you say uh, 1559, is, that's an EIP. What does an yes. EIP stand for? Yeah, EIP stands for Ethereum Improvement Proposal. Um, and the number is just basically based on the the pull request number on GitHub. So if you want to propose a new EIP, anybody can do so. Uh, you get assigned like a, an issue number in GitHub and we just use that uh, to, to specify the, the name of the EIP. That, that's, that's interesting. I'm going to go back to 1559 in a second here, but uh, can you go through like what, how do you make a proposal and and uh, how does, I, I'm assuming it's a, it's a vote on which proposals are going to be, um, you know, put into Ethereum, but yeah, how do you propose how do you vote and yeah. what makes, how, how do you know, how do you make the cut? Yeah, yeah, good question. So if you want to write a proposal, uh, EIP one is basically an EIP that explains how EIPs work. Uh, so, you know, if anybody like listening actually wants to do one, that's that's the place to look. But at a high level, anybody can put it together, um, you know, and, and there's a very loose requirement that like it meets the templates guidelines, but you know, that's it. Like if you're able to like follow the, the template, anybody can have an EIP. Um, then, you know, getting your EIP accepted is like commensurate to how big of a change it is, right? So we've had small EIPs in the past where it's like, you know, somebody finds like a small thing that's wrong or, you know, that can be easily improved. And it's, you know, obvious that like it's wrong or can be improved. And then those are like no brainers, right? Uh, the way we, we decide which EIPs get accepted is we have the different client teams um, and we discuss it sometimes for minutes, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months. Um, and we don't have like a formal vote. You basically want to get to a spot where, you know, nobody has strong objections to it. So it's not like a, a majority thing or whatnot. Like, you know, if there are some, some developers who have like a strong objections, we'll, we'll obviously address those. Uh, the main concern that's always being kind of uh, considered is the security of the network, right? I think as protocol developers, the, the one thing we want to optimize for is the security. So the, what most EIPs go through is like they have this new great idea for Ethereum. They, they present it to the protocol developers. Protocol developers find a bunch of security issues with it. Um, and then, you know, it's like a back and forth process of, of getting to a spot where if this actually gets on the main net because we've shown thoroughly that like it's, it's, it's secure. Um, and then, yeah, so those proposals get bundled together into hard forks or network upgrades. And then it's really up to the community to decide whether they want to adopt this upgrade, right? Like the, the protocol developers can, can put out a release with it, um, but then you need everybody who's running a node, all of the DeFi applications, you know, all of the exchanges and whatnot, they all need to upgrade and, and to decide that like this, they think this is good, right? Um, and obviously when protocol developers put out a release, they think that you know this is something that the community wants, um, but there's no way by which they can like force everybody to upgrade. They really have to to uh, to put something out that that people willingly decide to to uh, to upgrade to. It almost sounds like a political campaign that you might have a proposal and you really want to just make make try to convince everybody that this is the right way to go. Yeah, absolutely right, and 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 some of them are much more. Um, much less subjective than others, right? Like, so as soon as you add like a degree of subjectivity, uh, it, it does become quite political. Um, yeah. So 
the, this is just obviously just a hypothetical. Like, is it possible for Ethereum to go away that say was it's out of the the current ethos because of like say the political um, power that's behind some of these proposals that it all of a sudden just keeps evolving into a different way because of a, a, a like a focused effort to do so. I mean, I think you know what the community wants evolves over time, and also the and and. You know, so that kind of guides the, the, the high level direction. Uh, but an, another thing that happens is as the community grows, changes become harder and harder to pass, right? Because you have like a much larger, diverse set of people who all have opinions um, and, and the, the default, you know, is, is inertia, right? Like the default is not changed. Um, so I think naturally it's like, you know, the community kind of moves towards some, some roadmap um, and over time, it becomes much harder to like steer everyone away. Like it's it's not impossible, um, but it's just like a function of like you know, it, it being bigger. Um, yeah, and maybe you know at some point in the future, maybe there is something that's like so such a fundamental disagreement the community splits again, and you know that's not something like I I see coming, but it's you know it could happen. And, and I think that's what's nice about blockchains where like, if you, if you do have a strong disagreement with like a large part of the community, then both sides are like free to fork and, you know, continue on as, as, as they please. Excellent. And we just kind of like, you know, changed this whole conversation and now I have to t- bring it back to 1559. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about EIP 1559 because, well, I don't know why, why is it such a, a hot topic right now? Yeah, I think, yeah, there's like, Three things, right? The first is that it's just been in the work for a long time and people are happy to finally see it. The second is what I mentioned around like the uh, the improvements that it brings to how you know you can send transactions with the network. And the third is this idea of like that every transaction burns ETH and it creates a deflationary pressure on the network. Um, so I think you know it's a big change that has like a lot of impacts across both the economics of Ethereum and the user experience. Um, and people are, are excited to see that go live. And so what are going to be some of the uh, consequences of uh, 1559? Yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the two biggest ones are, one, it becomes much easier to figure out how much to pay for a transaction. And it, it also improves the, the likelihood of your transaction being included quicker. Um, so, you know, just for users sending transactions, that, that, that's much better. Um, and two, like I, I hinted at earlier, because every transaction burns a little bit of ether um, and we raise the amount that's burnt per transaction as a function of how many people use Ethereum, um, it just creates this nice positive feedback loop where like the more people use Ethereum, the more ether gets burnt um, and you know people like to, to see that. Does it reduce the fees at all? No, I, slight, I mean, short answer is no. Medium long answer is like slightly because it provides it helps you better estimate your fee, um, but basically like so you're not overpaying. Yeah, so think like a twenty percent reduction, not like a twenty x reduction, right? Um, got it, got it. Excellent, excellent. So moving away from that, uh, I just want to talk about some of these other proposals. Um, I, I just read an article on it, and like some things that came up was like a reduction in refunds, uh, thirty five twenty nine. Do you know anything about that one? Sure. Yeah. So um, thirty five twenty nine removes refunds for certain opcodes. And so basically how how, uh, Ethereum works today is if you store data on Ethereum and then you clean up that data after. So imagine, you know, you're you're selling NFTs. uh, You know, I know you have an NFT, so I like store that in my contract, but then you sell your NFT to somebody else and like your balance goes to zero. So I can kind of remove you from my contract, right? Like I don't don't need to track you there anymore. 
Um, so right now on Ethereum, when you remove that data from, from, from the network, you get like a small gas refund back, right? To kind of incentivize people to, uh, to clean up after themselves. Were you, um, were, were you actually just referencing my own NFT there? Yeah, I mean, any, any NFT, Oh, NFT, because right? like, I was going to say, because I just minted oh, my first NFT like oh. two days ago. I was like, do you really know about my NFT? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so like anybody's NFT and any data on the network, right? Um, but that, so it, it kind of sounds like a good idea to give this gas refund at, at the beginning. But um, what we've seen in practice is most of the, the refunds are not used for this. They're used for when the gas fees become low on the network, people will uh, fill up the network with basically junk data. And then when the gas fees are high, they'll delete all that junk data and get those refunds back so they don't have to pay those high gas fees. Um, and that creates kind of some instability in the network. And it also leads to sometimes uh, blocks, you know, the block limit right now is 15 million on the network, um, but that doesn't take into account gas refunds. You can actually have an extra 50% uh, based on refunds. So it means that sometimes we have blocks that are like 15 million gas, but sometimes they're like effectively 22 and a half million gas. So that also creates like some instability in, in block size. Um, so in order to kind of, you know, remove the incentive for people to fill up storage when gas price is low and to remove kind of this this uh like shadow block gas limit um 35.29 basically reduces greatly the amounts uh for refunds uh, so it doesn't remove a hundred percent of the ref of the refunds but like yeah most cases it, it'll just remove the gas refunds and that just provides better stability for the network all right so there's a lot of proposals here. Uh, I'm not going to try to go through all of them and get like a summary on all of them. I just want yeah. you to pick your favorite. If it's not 1559, what's your favorite uh, proposal in this new fork? Sure. So those are the two biggest ones. Um, I think one that's neat, uh, it's kind of a sister proposal to 1559 is uh, 3198, which basically returns this base fee or the minimum value per transaction to smart contracts. So it, it, it allows basically smart contracts to benefit from the same UX uh, improvements as, as users will with 1559. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think the other one that's kind of neat is 3540 is, um, doesn't, uh, 3541, sorry, it doesn't do a lot itself. It just basically reserves some, uh, it, it reserves a, a byte. So like a, a set of characters, uh, and when we're going to have smart contracts in the future that, that starts with that byte, um, we'll be able to have new formats of contracts. So basically it, it blocks anybody from using like specific bytes. And then in the next upgrade, uh, probably Shanghai, um, we'll be able to say, if the smart contract starts with these bytes, you can process it in a different way than the current smart contract. So it's like a neat trick uh, to add new functionality to the EVM without breaking anything that's there already. So it's kind of like reserving a, a smart contract trademark, if you will. Yeah, basically it, it reserves the first couple of bytes and says, look, if your smart contracts code starts with this, then like you need to, you need to follow these new rules, but it, allow, it allows us to um, basically keep all the current existing smart contracts and, and not change or break any of them. Excellent. You know what? I think that we've talked, uh, spoke enough about this fork and all the EIPs. I really appreciate it. I just have one last question about Ethereum uh, to you before we, we get off here is, uh, you know, there's a lot of competition for Ethereum. There's a lot of people saying throughput. There's a lot of people saying that this is faster. There's Binance Smart Chain. There's all, all this other stuff. Um, just, I just want you to talk to the competitiveness of 
Ethereum moving into the future. Obviously, it has first mover advantage, and you know a lot of things are already built on Ethereum. But there's a lot of bridges trying to you know either reduce fees, uh, uh, create uh, higher throughput. You know, there's a lot of you know different things coming out to try to help F along. What do you think about the long-term uh, competitiveness of Ethereum? Sure. So I think you know, at a high level. A lot of the, the the kind of ETH kitters you see today that offer like better throughput and, and whatnot, um, you know, they're they're kind of offering like Ethereum Lite in a way, right? Like they're they're basically offering the same thing, uh, but 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 faster. Um, and you know, that may or may not be sustainable. And you've started seeing issues with like Binance Chain because their 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 throughput is so high. Um, and Ethereum has been working on you know scalability solutions that are sustainable for years. We're starting to see them go live right now with Optimism and Arbitrum. Um, I think the way you know I see Ethereum is you see most, if not all, of blockchain innovation coming from Ethereum, like NFTs, DeFi's, ICOs, DAOs, all this stuff was invented on Ethereum. And sure, you'll see like some co- competitors try to like take one of those niches and, and and build like a you know kind of a a product that that's tailored to that. Um, but Ethereum is still the place where basically all the innovation happens, right? Like where all the new stuff will get created and. Um, and, and, you know, this is what I, I hope to keep seeing in the future. I think if, if that stopped being true, then, you know, we'd be like in a much worse spot than if, you know, some other clone can offer higher transaction throughput. Um, and, you know, one way to think about it also is like Ethereum became like a, a serious, not necessarily competitor, but like a, a seriously differentiated thing to Bitcoin by virtue of actually being different. Um, so I think, you know, it didn't try to be like, basically like Litecoin, right? Like Bitcoin, but faster or like Bitcoin with one extra feature, right? It, it just built this genuinely new thing. Um, so I, I'm personally like much more excited on, on projects that, you know, want to try and build something that's genuinely new. And, and, you know, those might be like competitors or like, you know, like complements to Ethereum. Um, but at least, yeah, they're, they're starting something that's, that's like original. Um, and yeah, so I think we're like in a good spot. I think we have, you know, a lot of the smartest people and like the most innovative stuff happening on Ethereum um, and scaling is is slowly being rolled out. So, yeah. Just a question that just popped in my head. How, how much is Vitalik still involved with the day-to-day and development? It's not involved in development, but it's, so I think it's impressive how much stuff he can keep in his head. And so even though he's not involved day-to-day in like, you know, he'll get involved in a specific initiative from time to time. Um, he's able to keep like a, a pretty good overview of literally everything that's happening, right? And I think he's he's been incredibly effective at finding what are the spots that like um, are most like neglected right now. Like, you know, what are like the important problems that no one's paying attention and directing attention there. Um, and also, you know, when there's something that's blocked, like trying to think through, okay, you know, what's like, you know, blocking this, why can't this happen? And, and how, how do we change this? So I think, yeah, he's, he's like incredibly effective. Um, obviously he's, he's still just one person, right? Like, so most of the actual work and, and stuff that gets developed is, is not done by him, but yeah, I, I think he, he's been very good to help different parts of the researchers or developers and whatnot focus on, on spots that, that they might have neglected. Tim Bako, thank you very much for coming on the show and sticking to that 15-minute <laughs> time frame that we, we, we said earlier that, that that did not happen. But I appreciate uh, your half hour of time. Of course. That was great. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. I'll be back tomorrow. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. If you like the show, go over to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment. And until tomorrow, happy hodling, everyone.